We are looking at three Marys and Salome and another woman at the cross. But it is the way. It is Salome. If you look at the Greek, it isn't Salome. I might say it the other way because we're so used to saying that. But it's Salome. John 19, verse 25 is our text. Near the cross of Jesus stood, now here it is, list them out, his mother, okay, we know her name to be Mary, his mother's sister, Mark gives us her name, it's Salome, chapter 15, verse 40 of Mark. Mary, the wife of Clopas, she's only mentioned here by uh, this identification, and the third Mary, Mary Magdalene. We'll work through these. Let me just say at the beginning that these women at the cross were very brave women to be here. You remember that Peter, near Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas, was intimidated just there by the servant girls asking him questions. And in fear of his life, he disowned even knowing the Lord, let alone being one of his disciples. So much for Peter's fidelity. But here stands four women, also disciples, though Mary, his mother, had maternal ties as well. Now, if you read what is called the Magnificat of Mary, it's just a fancy word for her song, her hymn. You'll find it in Luke 1, verse 46 and following you will discover that Mary had more than a maternal uh, tie to Jesus, her son. She also saw in Jesus her Savior. Let me read her words for you. This is from her song. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. Luke 1, verse 46 through verse 50. Let me say that contrary to Roman Catholic Mariology teaching of the Immaculate Conception... Explained by Father William G. Most in this way, and I'm quoting him. In teaching that Mary was conceived immaculate, the Catholic Church teaches that from the very moment of her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was free from all stain of original sin. This simply means that from the beginning she was in a state of grace, sharing in God's own life, and that she was free from the sinful inclinations which have beset human nature after the fall. End quote. So when you hear of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, they're talking about Mary, not Jesus. But if Mary were not a sinner, like the rest of us, she had no need for a Savior, right? Yet in her own words, in her own poetry, she sings... My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation 
to generation. Well, where then did Rome come up with the doctrine of Immaculate Conception? Well, they have relied heavily on human tradition to fabricate this doctrine concerning Mary. It's a part of Mariology, to elevate Mary, Mary, Mary. Jesus would later say to the Pharisees, Jewish theologians of the day, mind you, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. Mark 7, verse 8 and 9. Well, Rome has done the same. Paul warned the church of Colossae, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Colossians 2, verse 8. Mary knew that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. And she wrote a song about it. And we have that song in Scripture. So it's more than just poetry. It's the inspired word of God. And as with the Pharisees, they, these of Rome have set aside the Scripture for the sake of tradition. Another hymn writer written by another woman named Fanny Crosby kind of echoes Mary's lyrics. We're going to sing this hymn at the end of our worship service this morning. But Fanny Crosby writes, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, Be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds his beams around me. Wonderful words of being near the cross. But on this day... On Golgotha's hill, how terrifying must have been Mary's ordeal at the cross as she washed her son, may I say her savior, innocent of all crimes against the state and all sins against God. Yet there he was hanging naked before a gawking crowd, a mocking crowd, an insensitive crowd, a crowd totally bent on ridicule and slander and blasphemy with hatred in their hearts and murder on their minds. Mary was living out Simeon's prophecy when she and Joseph brought baby Jesus to the temple to be circumcised according to Jewish law. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Luke Luke 2, verse 34 and 35. 
The previous verse says the child's father and mother marveled at what was being said about him. Luke 2 verse 33. But now, now, outside Jerusalem on Skull Mountain, the mystery has been solved and the marveling has ceased. Mary now knew full well what Simeon meant when he prophesied a sword will pierce your own soul too. The crowd around the cross scarcely took notice of Mary or of the other women who were there with Jesus as his followers. And make no mistake about it, they knew who Mary was, though Joseph by this time was dead and gone. The recognition of the hometown folk had reached Jerusalem by this time. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Matthew 13, verses 55 through 57. They knew who she was. And yet there was no temperament of their hostile vitriol, of their venomous rhetoric, which they heaped on Jesus with delight in full earshot of his mother. Let me read it to you. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. He can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For after all, he said, I am the Son of God. Matthew 27, verse 39, verse 43. Such a mean-spirited venting of the spleen was uncalled for. Some of these mockers, some of these scorners, no doubt, had witnessed Jesus' miracles. They had listened to his encouraging gospel call. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. There was no justification for their attitude or for their berating of this one who had done nothing harmful to any of them. Unless telling the truth and showing mercy is to be counted as harmful. Thus Jesus said accurately, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. John 19 verse 25. The New English Standard Version says, they hated me without a cause. There's no justification. For this hatred. But there it was. And Mary his mother. Saw it all. She heard it all. And yet she stayed as our text reads. 
near the cross. Near the cross. One anonymous poet, and I got this from Boyce's commentary, put it down in verse this way. Near the cross, her vigil keeping, stood the mother worn with weeping. Where he hung the dying Lord, through her soul in anguish groaning, bowed in sorrow, sighing, moaning, past the sharp and piercing sword. Oh, the weight of her affliction, hers who won God's benediction, hers who bore God's holy one, Oh, that speechless, ceaseless yearning. Oh, those dim eyes never turning from her wondrous, suffering son. I think the poet got it right. Mary, his mother, was there at the cross. There was a second Mary there. She's simply called the wife of Clopas. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But anyway, that's just, this is the only statement that we have about identifying her. Wife of Clopas. Well, I'll say, okay, well, who's Clopas? We don't know. I've tried to search it out. We don't know. But she is referenced in Matthew's account of the resurrection in which he states, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Also Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel tell us about her that she was the mother of two boys, James, who is called James the Lesser, and Jose, Joseph, a derivative of Joseph. That's it. She's a mother of two fellow disciples He's called James the less to identify uh, him and distinguishing him from James the Apostle, James the brother of our Lord. So James, John, these are Joseph, these are common Hebrew names, just as we have common Christian names. That's basically all we know about this Mary. Now additionally, and here's the beauty of John, John references Mary's sister, being there at the cross. So that would be Jesus' aunt, right? Who is named by Mark in chapter 15, verse 40, Salome, the wife of Zebedee. So she is the mother of James and John, which makes James and John cousins, first cousins to Jesus. Did you know that? The significance of Salome being among these women is that while Jesus' words are true, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, verse 37 and 38. While all of that is true, it is also true, get it now, that many Many times salvation comes to our family members, so much so that we can even trace generations of Christians from the same family. Hallelujah for that. Praise the Lord for that. 
Donna and I were visiting Lexington, Kentucky on a vacation, and we wanted to tour the um, military academy that is there. That is the academy in, <coughs> excuse me, by the way, it's still operative. It, the, that is the academy in which Stonewall Jackson taught. And although he fought for the Confederates, he was a godly man. And taught a Sunday school class, forget it now, for blacks before it was customary to do that. He was a Presbyterian in his viewpoint, but there he was. So we went to uh, this military academy, and after touring his house, his office, and the beautiful chapel that they have there for the cadets, we decided to visit the cemetery there in which Stonewall Jackson is buried. It's named um, the Kentucky uh, Memorial, Memorial Cemetery of Kentucky. It's, and it's, it's a national cemetery because Stonewall Jackson's buried there. Now, it was a very old cemetery, as you can imagine. The tombstones were carved from sandstone, which you may know is not very stable. It's not nearly as impervious to the elements as marble or granite, but one could still uh, make out the names and the dates of those buried there. And Don and I came upon a whole plat of graves in a row in which every person's last name was the same. And I couldn't remember what, what was, I'm trying to think, what was that name, what was that name? I went on the internet, believe it or not, and they have a write-up of the main figures buried at that Kentucky cemetery. And when I saw this name, I said, that's them, Pendleton. Pendleton is the name. So what I'm going to share with you here is from the registry of the cemetery that they wrote about these men. But I'll tell you what the brief is in a minute. William Nelson Pendleton. Camp Pendleton, by the way, is named after him. Yeah. Born December 26, 1809. Died January 15, 1883. Civil War Confederate Brigadier General. Born in Richmond in 1838. He received ordination as an Episcopal Rector. That's a minister. And 15 years later became the minister of Grace Church in Lexington. This is Lexington, Kentucky. During the Civil War, he was quickly promoted to colonel and chief of artillery under the staff of General Joseph E. Johnston, who called him, here it is, that model Christian soldier. Wow. A secular man, Johnston, saying of him, he's a model Christian soldier. His son, Alexander Swift Pendleton, nicknamed Sandy, right next to him, buried right next to him. This is all in this Kentucky cemetery. Born September 28, 1840, died September 23, 1864. He reported to Jackson, who was then a colonel in the Confederate Army at Harper's Ferry. In July, Jackson requested him for his ordinance officer, and from the 19th of that month until his death, he served as a capable, well-liked, and highly respected staff officer to General Jackson and his successors. He enjoyed a close relationship with Jackson, whose intensely religious nature he shared. Pendleton shared. When Jackson, you might remember, was shot inadvertently by one of his own soldiers in the fog. You know, it was a foggy night. They didn't know. It was Pendleton who prepared Jackson's body for burial. It was Pendleton who was a pallbearer at Jackson's funeral. His son, John Pendleton, emigrated 
from Spotsylvania County in Virginia to Christian County in Kentucky in 1812. He entered into the constitution of the Bethel Church, which he served long both as clerk and as a deacon. He was a man of enlarged views and was far in advance of the Baptists in the Red River Association, of which he was a member about 12 years. He entered with his church into the constitution of the Bethel Association, and was a very prominent member of that body, being an earnest and enlightened advocate of missions and the support of, of that kind of ministry. He contributed no small part in giving direction to the Council of the Bethel Association in these matters. As a citizen, he occupied a prominent position in his county, which honored him with a seat in the state legislature in 1833. Among his children... They're all buried there in the cemetery right next to him. Where the distinguished J.M. Pendleton, Doctor of Divinity, so he's a theologian. William H. Pendleton, long a deacon of the church at Hopskinville and a most valuable church member. And Cyrus N. Pendleton, a prominent lawyer and politician of Christian County, Kentucky, and a member of the Bethel Church. I counted six generations on the tombstones. And there they are, buried one next to the other. The point I am making in all this is that as with Jesus' family, so it may be with yours. His aunt Salome was at his crucifixion. She was there because she was a believer, not just because she was his aunt. John records, however, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting there to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of the tabernacle was near, Jesus' brothers, these are his half-brothers, they're named in Matthew 13, verse 55, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, by the way. They said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, why don't you show yourself to the world? Can you see the sarcasm? Can you hear the sarcasm in the brothers' voices? And then John, who knows all these things, adds this. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me is not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You'll find all this in John 7, the first seven verses. That was them. But after the resurrection, we know that two of Jesus' brothers, James And Jude became believers and wrote under inspiration of the Spirit of God two of the New Testament books that we have in our Bible that bear their name. The book of James, the book of Jude. What we should take from this, brethren, is this. Never say never. Never say never. God will never save my sister. God will never save my brother, my aunt, my child, and so on. They are so hard-hearted. They are so opposed to the gospel. Their life is so bogged down with sin and rebellion that they will never repent and believe. As kindly as I can say it, 
You are not omniscient. You do not know that. Joseph's brothers plotted his murder and sold him into slavery, but they became the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. Read the genealogy in Romans chapter 16. And verse 7 in particular. This is Paul writing to the Romans. And he says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And, 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 they were in Christ before I was. Ho, ho. Verse 11, he mentions another one. Greet Herodian, my relative. Now, I I wonder, I wonder what they thought of Paul when he was known as Saul, the great persecutor of Christians. They're saved, they're Christians, and he isn't. Did they think, he is such a zealot for Judaism, he will never become a believer in Jesus Christ. But he did. He did. By God's grace. Let me give you Paul's own testimony. He says, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. (laughs) Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Does that sound like your relative? Does that sound like your friend? He goes on. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love. These are gifts. They poured out on him. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. Why? So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example, as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1. 13 through 7. He breaks into doxology. He just can't take it. You know what he's saying? If God can save, can and did save me, the worst of sinners, he can save you. He can save your friends. He can save your relatives. Brethren, never say never. Jesus' aunt Salome was at the cross in prayerful vigil for him. His brothers became his disciples in time, even though even those who, whose hatred for Christ is so strong that they make it their mission in life to hunt down and persecute God's people. They can be recipients of God's grace. Paul put it this way, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, verse 20 and 21. Yeah, people are steeped in sin and some of them are your relatives and my relatives and so on. But God's grace can overpower that. 
Now, with that said, we must also realize that our friends and relatives will never, listen to me, they will never become recipients of God's grace by believing the gospel unless and until they are exposed to the gospel. Oh, you're looking for a magic lightning bolt, are you? It ain't going to happen. Paul puts it this way, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, says Paul. Now listen to this. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Okay. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Romans 10, verses 12 through 15. Paul is showing here that he understands, he understands the hardness of men's hearts. And so four times he asks, how can, how can, how can, how can? He realizes the grasp, blindness, and unbelief have on the sinful heart. And so he postulates the question, how can? How are they going to get saved? Is it possible for such obstinacy towards God's salvation to end? And then he answers his own question. Romans 10 verse 17. Consequently, he says, faith. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. What was his own practice? Paul's own practice. He says, we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles or Greeks, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25. So he's saying that Paul was not into Greek philosophy. He was not into Jewish traditions. And he tells us why. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Since that's the case, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21. People don't find God and his salvation by studying humanistic philosophy. They do not find God by studying comparative religions. Do you know that most secular universities have a required course in comparative religions? When our kids went to the University of Michigan in Flint, they had to take a comparative course in religion. You never heard such mumble-jumble, blasphemous stuff come out of a course than have a secularist trying to teach about God. No, they find God through his son, Jesus. 
And that is why we preach Him, because God wants sinners to find Him. He wants sinners to be reconciled to Him. And there's only one way for that to occur. Jesus puts it this way, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This claim is exclusive because there is but one exclusive Savior, not many. So you have to come through Christ. So my charge again is this. Never say never. Never lose hope. Be found praying, yes. Be found trusting, yes. Number three, be found sharing the gospel, the words of Jesus Christ. They won't come out to church to hear the gospel. You had to take the gospel to them. That's our mission. There was a third Mary at the cross. Her name is Mary Magdalene. Or Mary from the town of Magdala. That's how they name people. These aren't, uh, it's not Fred Luke as though they had a first name and a last name, Mary Jones. No, it's Mary who lives in Magdala. That was a little town on the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Now this Mary is very active. She's at the cross. She's at the tomb on resurrection morning. She is the first person to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. She's the one who runs to tell the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. She's the omnipresent Mary. Why such devotion? I I mean, why so much time allotted to Jesus? Doesn't she have other interests, other things for which she is responsible? Luke's gospel gives us the key to understanding this Mary. Here's what he writes. After this, Jesus traveled about from town to town, village to village, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Shuza, the manager of Herod's household. God even had his people in Herod's house. Can you believe that? Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support the disciples out of their own means. Luke 8, verses 1 through 3. So, so, these were the wealthy women of society. The wealthy women of society. And just like the wealthy of our society, they had little time for the God of the Bible, but they were all the time, all of their time was spent in the occult world of Satan. Ouija boards, if they had them, they didn't have them, but you get my point. Tarot cards, seances, spiritists, mediums, necromancers, those that call up the dead and the like. This is what they were into, these women, these hobnob society gals. And it appears that Mary Magdalene was immersed, immersed in occult, in the occult world. She was possessed by no less than seven demons. Now seven 
is one of the numbers of perfection in Scripture. Three is another one. So seven demons mean she has the optimum in, in indwelling of slavery by these evil spirits. Why would seven be considered a perfect number? Well, six, you say, well, that's three, three. Yeah, but one of the threes is sharing the middle. If you have seven, you've got three, and then seven is in the, the guy in the middle, and you've got another three. So that's why it's considered a perfect number. Same way with three. One, one on each side. Anyway, math. Jesus tells this account. Listen to his story. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house that I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes, listen now, and then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of the man is worse than the first. Luke 11, 24 through 26. The moral of that account is it's not good enough to be rid of the demons. Something, may I say, someone holy, namely the Holy Spirit, must take their place. The vacuum must be filled with godly things. Say, I got my house in order. It's spanking clean. Yeah, but what's there? Is there anything of substance there? Jesus says the, wor- the latter state is worse. Because the demons come back in number. I've talked to a number of missionaries about this. In third world countries where they've had demon possession. Where they have expelled, expelled demons. And then... You know, a month later, the same person comes back and more more demons. So they were scratching her head, you know, thinking, well, maybe, well, maybe we're doing something wrong. How could we expel the demons and then the demons, and a month later, these same, this same person is repossessed. Well, they finally figured out that these people were opening themselves to the demons on purpose because they liked the power that the demons gave them although they didn't like the mean things the demons did to them. In the New Testament, we have a case of a demon-possessed man where the demons threw him in the fire all the time, rolled him around in the dirt, threw him in the lake, tried to drown him. They do mean things. They are murderers like their father, Diabolos. Well, nonetheless, Jesus set Mary Magdalene free from the sevenfold hold of Satan and fill her with his spirit and with the eternal life that he alone brings in regeneration. And this is why she is everywhere found with Jesus. She cares not that she may be endangering her own life through such close association with this Galilean that is on the cross. She throws cautions to the wind Her Lord will not die alone if she has anything to say about it. Her Lord will have a proper embalmment with appropriate spices and perfume. 
in his tomb if she has anything to do with it. And that's why she's there on resurrection morning. Now it doesn't matter. Roman soldiers and all mockers and prefects, Pharisees and scribes cannot intimidate her or quench her love. She will be there. She wants to be there. She must be there. And so she is where few others are. No disciples there but John. But she's there. Now, by way of application, brethren, our world is not a friend to God, even less a friend of Jesus. But it is Jesus and him alone that can rectify their miserable lot in life and set them free in heart and mind through forgiveness. Mary, Jesus' mother, Salome, Jesus' aunt, Mary, wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, courageous and loving women all. They're there. And whose message echoes that of the psalmist. Kiss the son. Kiss the son in love and submission as these women of the cross did. Or be subject, subjugated rather, to chained forever, expelled from God in the lake of fire. Psalm 2. Jesus put it this way. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? yet forfeit his soul. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now notice these. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Mark 8, 36-38. May none here bear that shame. Don't be ashamed of Christ. These women surely weren't. They identified with him. His disciples were scared. I bet they were scared too. But they were there. That's a mother's love. And that's the love of these women disciples. And they add a dimension to our discipleship that sometimes men don't know about or at least are unwilling to express. Men, do we have trouble? Does it choke us? Does it kind of choke in our throat to say to Jesus, I love you. I love you. Pastor Tucker taught me that in our conversations uh, many times. John would say, God knows I love him. Christ knows I love him. And it was a rebuke to me because I often fail to voice it that way. It's not that the love isn't there. It's just I would, I would rationalize. I would say, well, he knows. I would be like Peter in, in John's gospel. Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Well, Lord, you know it. Yeah, you, you, you know I love you. And Jesus would say, well, then you, f- you feed my lambs. You do the ministry that I've called you to. You demonstrate your love. You show me that you don't really disown me. 
Thank you for all godly mothers that are here this morning. So appreciative. I don't know about um, everyone that's mentioned here. I don't know about Mary Magdalene, for example. But the other women that are mentioned here were all mothers. Salome was the wife of Zebedee. And that makes her mother to James and John, which means James and John were first cousins of Jesus. Again, in the family. You never say never. Amen. Our Lord, we're so thankful that your grace reaches down to us, touches our lives, and brings us to know you. We celebrate motherhood today especially those godly mothers that set an example, sometimes when the fathers have not. And how their love reached out to you that day on the cross. You were not going to die alone if they had anything to do with it. And the disciples missed out on a lot of blessing that day. But you forgave them their sin as you forgive us our sins and their fear and all of those anxieties locked away in the upper room for fear that the authorities would come get them next. But here these brave women, motivated by their love, motivated by their faith, overcame their fears and there they were. We thank you for our godly mothers that have done the same that have raised godly children and are still praying for their unsaved children as along with the dads, praying for their kids. We ask that you'll honor those prayers. And Lord, we see in your family, your aunt, your cousins, your brothers in the flesh coming to know you as Savior. And we want the same for our family. We don't think it presumptuous of us to pray that way, that you'll save our kids our grandchildren, that you'll save our brothers and sisters, that you'll save our relatives out of your great mercy and love. May your mercy find them as well as it found us. And may they one day join us in the glorious church of the everlasting covenant when we sing praise to you as our Savior. We ask this not just for their good, not just for our personal happiness, but for your glory. For you are glorified every time a lost soul, a lost sinner comes to know Christ. May you draw them today, O Jesus. Give them faith they don't have and repentance they don't want to give towards their sin and bring them this day into your family. Amen. Jesus, keep me.